0: This is the Bad Verb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I've got a conversation here with Ben Blatt. He is a former staff writer for Slate and the Harvard Lampoon. He's a numbers guy, and he's taken his fun approach to data journalism to topics such as Seinfeld, map-making, The Beatles, and Jeopardy. And we're gonna be talking about his book, Nabokov's Favorite Word is Mauve. It's a book about what we can learn about writing and authors, based not on what they say or what impressions we get from reading their books, but from applying rigorous data analysis to their actual texts. None of us really knows ourselves. We tend to look at our past selves through our current impression of who we think we are. We rewrite the past to make it consistent with our vision of the present. But if a artificial mind, and we're not talking about AI so much in this episode, but just theoretically, If an artificial mind could pour over every word you've ever spoken, every word you've ever written, in books, essays, articles, homework assignments, letters, emails, texts, what that mind would probably discover about you would not only surprise and possibly dismay you, but it would certainly shine a light on the fact that the impression that you have of yourself, the self that you present to the world as your actual self, is a fabrication. It's not a problem. It's not that you're a bad person for doing that. We all do it. It's how our brains work. Anyway, here's my conversation with author Ben Blatt. You are listening to the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I'm joined by Ben Blatt, the author of Nobukov's Favorite Word is Mauve. What the Numbers Reveal About the Classics, Best Sellers, and Our Own Writing. And also, a previous book, I Don't Care If We Never Get Back, 30 Games in 30 Days on the Best, Worst Baseball Road Trip Ever. Ben Blatt, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: All right. So let's uh, let's start with your previous book, which I, I have not even held a copy in my hands or you know read a single word of it, but I, I think of the movie um, Moneyball. Which was also a book, which I'm imagining you've read.
1: I have read Moneyball, and it probably, uh, in retrospect, it was probably the most influential book I've ever read. Which is probably not okay <laughs> too uncommon for people my age. But uh, the premise of Moneyball, kind of short, was using numbers to kind of look at baseball, which was sort of thought as like an art or a sport or something detached from numbers, and you know, looking at it more analytically to make better decisions. Uh, the second book that I wrote. You know, the publisher at some time described it as money ball for writing. I don't know about that exactly, but essentially using numbers to look at writing. And for my first book, the premise was not so much trying to maximize any decisions within baseball, but I went on a road trip to all 30 ballparks in 30 days with an algorithm, quote unquote, to find the fastest route possible. So a lot of overlap between optimization and uh, I guess my worldview.
0: Well, my father grew up in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, in New York and uh son of irish immigrants and you know he was roman catholic but his real religion was baseball yes and um i mostly grew up in kansas city missouri and there's you know one parking lot that contains both royal stadium and arrowhead which is the stadium for the kansas city chiefs couldn't tell you how many royals games i went to as a child i've the one time i set foot in um in arrowhead was to see a pink floyd concert so (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, yeah. I feel like definitely in uh, years past when baseball was on every day and not much else was going on, it was real kind of religion, as you would say, a real lifestyle.
0: Well, I've noticed that people who are really into numbers, you know, not just mathematicians and data scientists, but people like accountants often really get serious about baseball. That's It's definitely a numbers man's game.
1: Yeah, I think I I still love baseball after writing the book and growing a bit older, maybe overdosed on it a bit, just uh, (laughs) a whole experience. Plus being a Red Sox fan, kind of hard to top the 4 and uh, early 2000s years. Um, But I think just something about the regularity is very soothing. I think as I've gotten a bit older, I kind of embrace more probably like, you know, baseball is so regimented that there's only, it's really just a pitcher and the batter and a limited field interaction. And the dynamics are interesting, but not too crazy. And I think, That's both kind of a strength and a weakness of it, that it's a very it's a it's a team sport, but really just a bunch of individual players, which kind of makes it fun, but also limits it some.
0: Any interest in cricket?
1: Uh, I love watching uh, sports I'm not familiar with, but I can't tell you I know for the full rules other than flipping through it on, you know, ESPN three or whatever.
0: Right. I lived in Australia for a time and uh, oh, nice. I, I never really got to understand cricket. But yeah, it was it was present. And yeah, it was, it's yeah, it's kind of soothing because it is the ultimate in slow paced games. It takes games or matches, I guess, take days. You know, they just they're really slow paced.
1: Yeah, I think having no time element is a real interesting element that almost, you know, other than baseball and cricket, almost every other sport has a clock on it, which kind of yeah. limits it in some other ways.
0: So I talked to a lot of people uh, about machine learning and uh, big data and, you know, the rapidly increasing capabilities of artificial intelligence. Uh, your book is a few years old, though, so I think, you know, the it, it doesn't really reflect what's uh, happening in AI right now, but something that your book definitely right. is a product of is the ability of algorithms to comb through enormous data sets, you know, much, much more than humans could ever do. So for example, you can uh, look through tens of thousands of fanfic stories without ever having to read one, you know, to find the hidden patterns within. Uh, and I look at your bio and it tells me about all the places in the, um, you know, the magazines and other publications that you write for, but it doesn't really say where you get your interest in numbers and data science. So maybe say something about that.
1: Uh, I guess, you know, by training or schooling, whatever was kind of into math first Um, but you know just in college and growing up whatever always kind of thought that you know I like kind of like the pure math proofs or whatever but always kind of thought it was more interesting to apply that to everyday stuff and in terms of this book um, in college I was a member of the Harvard Lampoon which is a writing humor magazine and most of my other friends are you know writing tv or trying to write tv or writing novels or whatnot so just kind of on a day-to-day basis especially when i was writing this book was kind of absorbed with the writing lifestyle and writing and how people are trying to improve their writing and i think you know i kind of thought there was lots of advice books i was reading maybe not advice books but books on the craft of writing and they would kind of say stuff like never use an L-Y L- adverb. Like I always like describe my characters this way, like never do this. And like, you know, with a, writing a book of like a hundred thousand words, which is like a typical novel, everyone's going to break their own rules a few times. But I guess it was like very intuitive to me as someone who comes from a math world, but now thinking about these problems of like, are these like actually, like if you say don't use L-Y adverbs, but then you're using them every page, is that is that more than average? Is that less than average? Is that like, what is that? If you're trying to write, like, should you follow this advice? And like, if you can't take that piece of advice from this author, like, what other advice that they're giving you is actually useful? So I think there's a range of issues that this is not like a how-to book I wrote or anything. But I think kind of looking through things a bit more objectively and saying, there are some questions that we really can't answer with stats, especially in 2017. But even now, but there are some questions that like, are pretty quantifiable. And I just kind of thought the intersection of, Uh, taking a more objective look at some things was the way to do it. And stats happened to be the best
0: way. Well, that's what I was alluding to when I said that machines can comb through enormous data sets that humans never possibly could because you can pull out patterns and you know statistical correlations and regularities that a human mind just cannot extract from that larger data set, and that even includes you know the data set of all the words that any individual writer has ever penned. Even if they they are their own words, they don't have an encyclopedic recall of everything they've ever written. I certainly don't. Um, and so I might dispense it, not that I do, but I might dispense advice uh, about good writing that you know you could comb through like. All of my past blog posts and say, well, here's 10,000 <laughs> examples of where you don't follow your own advice. Uh, and in fact, we've compared you with the general populace and we've discovered that you follow your own advice less than most people do who've never heard it. Sure. Uh, so, what are some some amusing examples along those lines that you've discovered about well known authors?
1: Uh, I think the LY adverb is probably the most clear. I mean, just because it, it comes up so often. I think the, the example I pulled from was Stephen King but plenty of writing advice books essentially the idea is like you don't want to say he close he quickly s- closed the door you want to say he slammed the door you want to be just concise and not kind of fluffy in your language that's that's kind of how it's presented i think the first criticism you'd hear is that fluffiness even for people who you know for some people their writing is trying to be maybe poetic or it's trying to be casual or it's trying to do different things so I don't think it can apply to everyone and I think the ly adverb advice is generally pretty good though and you know you could say whether it's a bias or a tendency of good authors or what maybe it's a bias of what people consider good authors but usually in my book I essentially what I did was I looked at books that had won like a literary prize like or the author had won a literary prize at some point Um, like the Booker Award of the Nobel Prize and then I looked at kind of New York Times bestseller books and then I kind of looked at fan fiction and the L.Y. Advice was actually one that kind of tracked where amateurs use it way more than someone who would end up being like a popular book that you'd see in a bookstore that, you know, is critically acceptable but not necessarily a winner and then the award winners would use it even less. Uh, So I think that's one that is kind of bared out by the data. Um, There is, you know, not trying to be a super gotcha to Stephen King or other authors, but you know, he was not, I don't think particularly good at following his own advice on that one. Um, He obviously is, you know, an exceptional writer. Uh, and I think he probably, when he does use one, he probably is doing so consciously in a situation that he thinks makes sense. So I think a lot of it also, as I've grown older too and read more and thought about it, you know, I think this is like a good, again, not a how-to book, but I think a starting off point of, which advice is uh, reasonable and which is not.
0: So Stephen King uh, famously writes or sets many of his stories in Maine. Uh, Are you speaking to me from Maine?
1: I am not speaking from Maine, although I did. Back in the day, I I wrote most of this book while I was in Maine. I see. A town over from where Stephen King uh, wrote his first book, which was kind of fun.
0: And specifically in, in one line in the book, you write that you're Overlooking the same lake, which is the lake that the town that the mist is set in sits next to. Yeah. yeah.
1: I think uh, I now live in Los Angeles, which has uh, a lot of writers, but not necessarily of the book or novel variety. Uh, but, you know, coming from New England, where I, I grew up in New Hampshire and Maine, uh, sort of sort of inspiring to be around uh, a lot of, you know, American literature.
0: Now, speaking of L.Y. adverbs, is the word. Does the word surely qualify?
1: Uh, the word surely would, if it was, uh, as long as it wasn't, if it was used like before a verb, then it would, yes. So not, maybe not in a quote, like yes, surely, or, or like I, I, whatever, but. Uh,
0: surely you're joking.
1: Yes. That, I think that that would count in my metric. And I think that does get into some of the, these are all kind of estimates. Uh, there's. It's noted in the book somewhere. I think I got rid of the word only because that didn't fit my criterion of what it count. but there's lots of judgment calls. And in terms of, you know, if you're doing kind of a study on like sentence length or something, there's always going to be like weird sections in a book where the words are quoting someone else or uh, there's text that's supposed to be like, you know, it's repeated text or something. So there's going to be weird examples and that kind of got into the difficulty of, Um, bigger picture I had to decide if I'm using an author do I consider everything they've ever written do I just do their novels if they have an introduction to the book like maybe I get rid of those although sometimes the introduction is like written in the voice of the characters in the book or something like that so there are some judgment calls but luckily if you're just trying to get a general sense of who's using ly adverbs or not uh, it's not like one author is using five percent more some authors are using twice as more or three times as more as other authors
0: Well, I brought up the example of surely because uh, you mentioned in the book that that's a British word. British people say surely a heck of a lot more than Americans do. And you have a whole chapter on the differences and uh, the relationship, I'd say, between British writing and American writing. And um, there's a heck of a lot more of Americans than there are British people. So it's not a surprise that over time, the United States has come to assume a larger role in, in the literary worlds and basically in determining the course of English in general. Although I think there's probably more Indian English speakers than there are Americans. I, I would invite you to, to riff on that before I ask any specific questions.
1: Yeah, so I think um one kind of thing that I was going through was obviously what if you read, you know, I'm you know, American or whatever, read Harry Potter growing up. I'm I'm about that right age. Kind of the the magical world, for example, was a part of the intrigue of it, but so was just kind of the British lingo. Uh, so one kind of funny example I went through is I looked at on the fan fiction site, you know, it's self-reported, but you can see is this fan fiction author from America or from the UK? So you would think that maybe the word brilliant or blimey or bloke, those are kind of British words. So you would think that maybe British authors would use them more, although... To them, that may not have been a kind of the magic of building the Harry Potter world. But to Americans, those really stuck out. So if you go through the fan fiction of American authors, they actually use those British uh, B words as I singled out of my book way, way more than the British authors. So I think there's kind of, you know, on a very particular point here, kind of like an interesting example of people copying what they hear in a Harry Potter book and what they think they like and kind of emulating it. But I think it is kind of a broader point of when you write both consciously and subconsciously, you're probably emulating your favorite authors or your friends or something in some way. And I think, kind of like seeing how people overdo, you know, use the word brilliant a lot when writing, they're Americans writing Harry Potter fan fiction, but if they're writing Hunger Games fan fiction, they don't really use it that much. So I think there's kind of like this weird transmitting almost like a virus of different words or ideas or jokes or whatnot from book to book and person to person, probably not contained just with literature. Uh, But I think a lot of writing is kind of building on what came before it. And I think the words here are kind of in particular, but just in general, like if a book came out 20 years ago and it came out today, it wouldn't have the same impact just in both the writing style and in terms of uh, the concepts in it.
0: Well, you talk about, uh, yeah, the, the effect of Harry Potter on, um, American English, particularly, you know, as demonstrated by writers of fan fiction. Uh, but you also mentioned in passing and in, in the book, The Hunger Games. What do British fanfic authors do differently linguistically when they're trying to oc- occupy the world of uh, Katniss Everdeen?
1: You know, I'm not sure if I have that too much. I think maybe if I remember correctly, I was mostly coming from an American point of view was only kind of looking at uh, these British words. Um, I'm sure there are. Words, But I think in general, they kind of when it goes back to Hunger Games, they're still using bloke and blimey and brilliant and kind of these British words in their Hunger Games. So for them, maybe the the lack of a word is not noticeable in the Hunger Games and they can kind of continue their kind of baseline uh, descriptions. But I don't I don't remember anything. You know, I think the Hunger Games, which was especially big when I was writing this book, was kind of the movies were huge. I think those books are kind of. I, you know, I want to say they're probably very concisely written and well edited, but I don't think they have kind of a unique style that made the people excited where I think Harry Potter, um, I think JK Rowling did kind of have a more notable style for children's literature.
0: In that same chapter, you also talked about, um, loud writing versus quiet writing in terms of use of verbs. And, uh, you know, there's there's a stereotype, particularly in Europe, based on the behavior of American tourists, that Americans are loud. But uh, in, in the book, you, you demonstrate that the numbers show that Americans write loud in addition to just speaking loud. Yeah. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. So I think the essential, the setup of that point was there's, you know, when you have a – dialogue is a big part of most novels. So you can just say, like, he said, she asked or whatever, something that's kind of considered neutral. And I believe I – grab these loud neutral quiet uh distinctions from a professor who had kind of done this before but in a qualitative sense and then there's kind of the loud where you know if you want to say the character he bawled out he shrieked out he declared or whatever versus like hushed or muttered so there is some kind of funkiness going in where a book like 50 shades of gray has a lot of quiet words presumably in in anyways, the quiet words are not neutral in the setting they're or not just trying to be diminutive, but kind of fit the action going on. But then you can kind of also imagine that a book written at a leisurely pace, just has a lot of neutral language, a lot of whatever, versus maybe, you know, an American book as it turned out or a modern action book especially has a lot of action and people just kind of everything has to be with an exclamation point essentially, or maybe not even a literal exclamation point, but a word that kind of shows that this is a next level of drama and yeah, I guess it does turn out that Americans, uh, for better or worse, are a bit louder and uh, a bit more intense, I would say, in their descriptors.
0: Well, in the book, you have a chart of a great many authors, uh, some American, some British, and they are ranked according to their the loudness of their prose. But even authors, you know, who I wouldn't think of as being particularly loud, like... Um, Oh, J.R.R. Tolkien, for example. I mean, he's he's more loud than he is quiet, um, and it's I guess it's not surprising because you know almost any book of advice talking about writing, particularly writing fiction, says show don't tell you know, make it clear, give it, give it emphasis, make it forceful Mm -hmm. because quiet writing, unless you're super skillful at it, it can be a snore fest, you know?
1: I would imagine. And I would imagine with JR token, if we look at this chart um, and unfortunately I don't have the rest of the data as context, but it's kind of throwing out the neutral descriptors and just looking at the ratio of loud to quiet. So I would imagine with JR token, probably a lot of characters are stepping up and proclaiming something or, something like that. Not, not too much of, you know, you know, I guess maybe golems whispering to himself, but uh, I think not, not, you know, very from my, you know, I've, it's been over 10 years since I read it, but not, not too much kind of like uh bedside talk in that book. A lot, a lot of formal meetings uh, between uh, different hobbits and dwarves and everything as well.
0: Also importantly, I would say not many women in those books.
1: Not many women. Yeah. yeah. I had an earlier chapter where, Just kind of get a general sense, obviously not perfect, just kind of looked at just the pronoun he versus the pronoun she in books to get a general sense of um, how many male and female characters there are in each book. Obviously not perfect because not everyone is always going to be referred to at a pronoun at the same rate, but I believe Lord of the Rings ranked somewhere like 98% of the, you know, the descriptor of characters was male or something something much more even for people who write mostly male characters it's usually much closer to 70 30 or 80 20 than that extreme level
0: yeah usually at least there's a damsel in distress who needs rescuing but not not in tolkien (laughs) tolkien it's all about the dudes yeah but in, in this long list of you know authors ranked from quiet to loud you know, we've talked a bit about um, J.K. Rowling in the Harry Potter series, and she is among, she's number four. She's the fourth quietest writer on this long list. And you speculate in the book that maybe that's because uh, sneaking around Hogwarts under that invisibility cloak is such a big recurring theme, you know, in the plots of those novels.
1: I mean, even as you said it now, and I had to think about, you know, a few years ago when I wrote this, that that was my first mindset. So maybe, maybe other people have theories if they're listening to this, but uh... Definitely a lot of, you know, kind of children uh, sticking around and evading capture in the book. I think that's kind of the most common. The most common action is not necessarily a fight, although there is some, but kind of uh, just getting around the Hogwarts castle.
0: But in this list, I mean, only the first two authors on the list are less than 50% loud words. Um, even, you know, at the very quiet end of the list, authors tend to be loud, but the loudest among them, <laughs> the two loudest are uh, Ernest Hemingway and Elmore Leonard, everything direct and action oriented.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think those are examples. I mean, Hemingway does, there's some authors in my book that, you know, they bop around kind of, cause there's lots of rankings of books of L-Y adverbs of sentence likes of things like that. And I'd say some authors are maybe closer to average on most rankings. And Hemingway has to be an author that, you know, in many, many occasions has a very unique style. And you can see that just through the numbers. And not that unique necessarily means good or bad or anything like that. But he wrote very differently than average and very, very concise. And as you said, very, very action oriented, which uh, I think makes sense. You know, he's usually the author that people use for a show, not tell kind of explanation of how to write uh, if you're trying to write like him i think he he does do a good example of that if he just has his characters do the action and if you want to infer uh what's going on in their head that's a lot of times left up to you
0: i have never read an ayn rand novel but i've read her nonfiction work and i know her by reputation and i'm surprised to see her at the quiet end of this list you know because one she's russian (laughs) and and two, uh, she's very male focused. I mean, her her main characters are all male and she's very, um, you know, so, she's so pro-capitalist that seems to bring a, a very, you know, hard sort of masculine focus to her writing. So it's, I was just surprised to see her there at the quiet end.
1: I would, uh, yeah, I've, I'm also not super familiar with her novels, but I'm also, uh, would have guessed more towards the loud side, but somewhat, sometimes authors... Uh, Surprise you either because their writing style is a bit different than what you thought, or sometimes it does have to do with the funkiness of trying to look at something just through what you can measure.
0: Well, you've also got a whole chapter on um, men and women, and we've sort of touched on some of those topics, but I'd I'd like to get into it a bit more deeply. Uh, What does delving into the numbers tell us about how men and women think about themselves and each other?
1: When I wrote the book, there was like a few kind of objectives I had with this chapter. I didn't want to do obviously. A lot of my book is comparing authors and comparing, you know, British and American authors, and it's both interesting but also a bit easy to just be like, well, you know, men write like this and women write like this, or kind of go into a standard routine. But what was I thought a bit more interesting is you can isolate when male authors or people who identify as male on fanfiction sites or whatever write about male characters, do they use certain adjectives or do they use certain verbs in the speech? that female authors do not use writing about their male characters and vice versa and do males and females write about their female characters differently. Uh, So one example, if I can just kind of flip through it, and I did also for this chapter pull from not just the fan fiction websites, but from Literotica, which is essentially a fan fiction site of tens of thousands of people who have written uh, fan fiction for a lot, er, erotica essentially. Uh, So for example, just Pull it out. In literature, oftentimes, males do not use sobbed to describe their male characters, but females will. So they'll say he sobbed or she sobbed at about equal rates, even he a bit more. But the male authors almost always have the female character crying way more than the male authors. Um, And there's not, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with, like, you know, any author, any book that has kind of a weird ratio. It all depends on the characters but I think it kind of cuts through maybe some criticisms that people have, or just feelings that they have of in general, male authors may not get female characters or they don't get female characters that I'm interested in reading. And I think there are some trends that are kind of hard to isolate on a one book basis, but kind of overall, you can see why, you know, if you pick up a book off the shelf by a male author and a female author, it's reasonable to expect that they're going to write differently and write their characters differently.
0: So what are some examples? I mean, what, uh, where, where do, male and female authors differ in their assumptions about their own gender and uh, the opposite?
1: You know, I tried to cut through. Um, There are a few that were kind of just uh, interesting to me, like the verb grind, uh, which, you know, in English, I don't think of many verbs as being skewed in terms of one gender necessarily, but the word grind is used to describe male characters by both male and female authors. So, you know, I looked at classic literature, popular fiction, literary fiction, and it was kind of universal that females are rarely described as grinning. It's almost always the male character. So I don't know. Think about the, that one verb or just maybe the act of smirking is a bit more male oriented. So that was an example I pulled in my book of something that was surprising. And it appeared to be like pretty big magnitude and pretty consistent throughout all books. But then there's some other verbs I looked at. Uh, and, you know, it's a bit messy if you look at classic and literary literature but kind of one that was consistent throughout all corpuses was interrupted and essentially each gender uses that to describe the other gender more often so male authors would rarely say like he interrupted it doesn't matter who he was interrupting but would rarely say that in their book but about three times as often they have a female character as being the interrupter and for female authors it's the opposite where they're they're describing male characters as interrupting much more than male authors so Again, it's pretty consistent throughout the corpuses. So I think it is a real trend. Why is it that? I don't know if, you know, if you want to get too out there, you could, like, I don't know if you're into like kind of analyzing, you know, all society based on a few trends like that, but maybe something subconscious. people.
0: Oh, yes. Sweeping generalizations, please. (laughs) But,
1: you know, whether or not they're actually interrupting, but maybe if your perception of real life, you know, I think most authors would say or critics would say, you know, people's perception kind of makes it into the writing, whether they're consciously doing it or not. Uh, so if your perception is that you're always being interrupted by females or always inter- being interrupted by males, maybe, you know, if you look at tens of thousands of novels and fan fiction works, maybe that makes it into the, the writing at some point.
0: Most everybody gets married at some point. So <laughs> most everybody's had a spouse and probably, uh, yeah. Made I, a, I maybe a subconscious note of all the times that they were interrupted. Right.
1: <laughs> and not, and not, not at the given note when you're the one doing it. Exactly.
0: Okay. <laughs> so you, you talk and you make distinctions between professional published authors and authors of fan fiction. And there's a lot of fan fiction. Uh, what does the data show about the differences in how professionals and amateurs use language?
1: Yeah. So I believe. Kind of the one of the big things was the L.Y. adverbs um and kind of like the fluffy language. I'm going to have to pull out the chapter, hopefully to find some examples. But the fan fiction was both ideal and not ideal for doing this. I had never read fan fiction before doing this, but it seemed from a data perspective. Very useful because or just the magnitude A was easy to download uh, but B, there you know, there's only seven Harry Potter books and I guess a few spin-offs by J.K. Rowling, but there's literally tens of thousands of people writing Harry Potter fan fiction, and the words there. Some of those are like, most of those are shorter than a Harry Potter book, but some of them are very long. And I do remember in my book. I interviewed one woman very briefly who I believe has written the most Twilight fan fiction of any author, and she's actually written as of right, re- you know, five years ago. Whenever I interviewed her. Um, she had written more words in her Twilight fan fiction than Stephen King has in his whole published career. Wow. <laughs> and this, and this is just one author, and there's, you know, m- not many that are on her scale. I think she was the first or second and the largest in the database. But some people are pumping out a lot of words. so to be able to kind of download that and use that as a more systematic thing than, you know, some authors who are very notable that, you know Harper Lee. Almost everyone who grew up in America has read To Kill a Mockingbird, but until very recently, that was her only published book. Uh, and it's very hard to draw conclusions from one single book that may have been edited. And you, you know, it's hard to it's hard to figure out what what's what when someone has that little uh, volume.
0: Having attended high school in the United States, I of course have read To Kill a Mockingbird. I did not read what was it, Ghost Set a Watchman?
1: Yeah, I've also not read that. Okay, so you can't comment on it. I think you know if it's published forty years after the original. I think, um, the kind of the veracity of you know the meaning of the words or the editing of it is a bit is a bit questionable. Not not that she didn't write it, but what value is it bringing if it's published so far from when it was written?
0: Yeah, if at the time the decision was made, no, this isn't going out to the public. Why do it forty years later if money is not an issue?
1: I would say the same. Yeah.
0: Yeah you mentioned um, actually reading some fan fiction. My thinking was that uh, data tools allow you to draw insights from it without actually reading the stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, you know, for better or worse had to read some of it. I, I, for every author I mentioned in my book um, I didn't necessarily read, you know, obviously not their entire bibliography or a whole novel, but I wanted to read, you know, a chapter to just to give them a fair shake. And instead I said, in case I said something that was, could even be interpreted as criticism. And B, a lot of times I kind of, uh, when kind of doing this research, kind of picked a book or book series that in my mind was like distinct, but tried to read it with a sense of like what actually in here is quantifiably distinct. So I think one example is I'd read some of the Hardy Boy books when I was a kid. They're actually my dad's old books that he had kept around for 40 years or whatever. Um, And in the Hardy Boy books, you know just reading a few chapters which are very short it became very quickly apparent that the last sentence in each chapter was a like a super cliffhanger almost like comically so like and then he and then he opened the door like question mark and it was just it was you know they're written for children so it's not trying to be uh too literary but it kind of stuck out as like there's something very odd going on here and if you look it up it's mostly not a mystery the it was written by multiple authors, but the syndicate had rules that had to be, I believe, exactly 20 chapters, exactly 256 pages, because that was the way the the pages folded in the printing machine. And it had to be very formulaic. And the chapter endings in that, for example, I'd have to go check the exact stats, something like 80% and an exclamation point or question mark, kind of like an obvious cliffhanger. So once I kind of observed that qualitatively, as that's what I went and like quantified and said: Is this something that's unusual? And even though I think that's a high number on its own, if you compare that to, you know, Stephen King, someone who's prolific but not considered as formulaic, is it actually that much different, uh, or is it kind of similar across different levels of writing?
0: It's funny that Stephen King's not considered formulaic because he seems terribly formulaic to me.
1: You know, I, I think it. I guess you know, compared to the Hardy Boy books, I'll give him. I'll give. Him, Right okay. That. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: But I, I do want to say, and this is not necessarily related to your book, but just to writing in general, that arbitrary constraints, like there have to be 20 chapters or so many words or, you know, you have to use these characters and here's a, here's a list of, of style requirements. Intuitively, it seems like these would hamper creativity, but it's just the reverse that, you know, there, there's a whole... Yeah that corpus of writing exercises called constrained writing, where these very strange and sort of not just arbitrary, but kind of Baroque and and esoteric restrictions on how you use language get introduced. And it causes you to be very creative, you know, to, to work within that
1: framework. I, I couldn't agree more. And actually it, it does relate to a different section of my book where I looked at authors and books in a series and whether or not they got longer over time. So, books don't really have like a set, you know, they don't have to be like exactly 100,000 words these days. But usually, if you're writing a book, say when J.K. Rowling wrote the first Harry Potter book, the first one's not going to be a thousand pages because no one's heard of Harry Potter at the time. The publisher's not going to go through that. And the Harry Potter book's kind of noticeably famous, at least if you're around my age, where it started off around 300 pages and by the end it was like 800, 900 pages and very long and very wordy. I think you could say the editor constraints are probably not there by the end of the series that they're kind of giving JK Rowling freedom to do whatever she wants. And I went through other book series and not just that other authors who maybe had their first novel, just be a breakout success either critically or commercially. Uh, And invariably their second, third, fourth book always gets longer. And usually those books are not as well received, whether or not that's just kind of a fluke. It's hard to repeat. That's very true. Or whether or not, yeah, maybe having, a set length of, you know, you can't just write however much you want. You have to cut down 20% does improve the writing. And I think that's very true.
0: Well, there's, there's a lot that goes into that, I think. Like the the first novel of an unpublished author has probably been with them for a long time and they've done a lot of revising on it, you know, years worth. Whereas the second and third books of uh, a well-received trilogy, the, the publisher wants it. Like, give us the manuscript, come on. <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I looked at, for example, Amy Tan, who her first book, you know, very particular type of book, but it was like under a hundred thousand words. And, you know, her books after that were 150. What was her first book? The Joy Luck Club. So okay. She kind of that fit, would have been my
0: guess, but. Yeah.
1: So she kind of hit success after that. And after that, none of her other books are as popular. And I have, looking at a chart now that says, if your debut novel was a critical success, which I, I believe just means like being on the Pulitzer finalist list or the National Book Award list. And about 75% of the time, your next book is longer. So whether or not, you know, that is what's causing their second book to drop off in quality and not, they don't always drop off, but I think the constraints, uh, I mean, I, I, I very much agree with you that having constraints kind of, uh, makes you have to edit and make you think what's really good to have here and what the essence of the book is.
0: I read a lot of science fiction, which, um, as far as I could tell, I didn't read your entire book. I'm sorry to say, but in, in the portions that I did read, I didn't see any mention of science fiction. Uh, but there's it's a, a series that is famous among it's more famous among science fiction writers than it is among readers. But it's uh, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. Have you heard of that? I have not. Uh, well, it's it, as I say, it's it's a writer's book rather than a, a reader's book. Even though it is, of course, it's got a, a cult following. It's a couple decades old, at least. And it's a four book series, but he wrote them all consecutively before he even Mm -hmm. turned in the manuscript for the first one. So they are super consistent in tone and voice. And then years later, after it had gotten very popular, uh, the publisher wanted another. And the fifth book is, it's in a different voice. I mean, it shares some characters, it shares the setting, but it just, it's not a piece of that series. So Uh, it's really hard to return to the exact same writerly mindset that you were in when you first wrote that, you know, the Joy Luck Club or, you know, whatever the the first well-received book is Yeah. particularly, I mean, what's what's fame and fortune and success as a writer going to do to your writing style?
1: I mean, yeah, I I think that's a, a, you know, a a very good example. And you know, one I had not thought of, because I think a lot of times with kind of Hollywood sequels or remakes, something made 10, 15 years later, people complain it's different but it's sometimes easier to blame that on you know actors are older or different or the technology is the same or the budget's different but in writing you know the budget's not you know but i guess the book budget's changing but uh people are still putting pen to the page so there's no reason that it has to be different other than probably writing in a different mindset and a different age it's just very hard to duplicate whatever style that was writing and maybe sometimes that's for the good if it changes but if you're trying to maintain consistency, it's probably extremely hard to do that.
0: So what are some of the, the tools that you use to draw these um, these realizations from the data?
1: So um, it's actually fairly accessible. One thing I did in my book, which was kind of because I was writing for general audience, plus I just think it's cleaner. As I I was looking at kind of word counts and maybe word positioning in terms of dialogue or something like that, or parts of speech, but nothing, nothing beyond that. So I wasn't trying to, other than a few very particular examples, I wasn't trying to give like an emotion score to anything like that. So essentially I have a programming language called Python, and there's a popular package in there that I believe was written, originally written by some Carnegie Mellon professors called the natural language toolkit. And you can go through and you can take a book and you can say how many words are in it. How long are the sentences? How often does this come out? And, you know, you get the program. It's a bit, a bit manual intensive. if You don't know programming, but kind of tease through the questions that way. And a lot of the work that I did, which was a lot of grunt work, but I think worthwhile is even though it's very easy and fun, which is why I did it to do the fan fiction stuff. Cause it's nice and organized. Um, I went through the books and said, all right, exactly what is William Faulkner's bibliography and like, which ones are as novels, which ones are short stories, which ones are nonfiction and should not be included, and did that for, you know, hundred authors that you've probably read in your life or in your schooling or whatever, and kind of organized that in a systemized way. So instead of just saying, well, like these four books we pulled uh from Ray Bradbury, like let's let's take the whole bibliography um and looking at it that way. And since you know, I started writing this in like 2016. So now with the language of, um, or the ability of computers out there now, I, I think kind of the cleaning up would still be essential if someone tried to do this, because I think it's not interesting if you're a fan of Kurt Vonnegut. If I say, well, this only includes three of his books, then those stats aren't interesting. But I think kind of the level of granularity you could get from the processing would be even better now and pretty interesting.
0: I'm definitely a, a Vonnegut fan. He's, uh, he's yeah. sort of the... The bridge between sci-fi and literary fiction, one of them anyway.
1: I, I, vonnegut, I would say, um, at least for a long time, was probably my favorite author, and I think, I think I, he he is in my book, and he and Bradbury, and I think they probably did luck out in that they're they are science fiction, but they kind of get respected by uh, the literary crowd more so than. The typical science fiction author kind of gets discounted.
0: Right. (laughs) David Brin will never enjoy uh, the, you know, the the literary acceptance and, um, and, you know, praise that Vonnegut gets. Do you have a favorite Vonnegut novel?
1: Uh, You know, Cat's Cradle, I think is kind of a standard answer, but I do like it. I also, um, I reread Player Piano last year. I thought that was, pretty it, i think it was maybe his first or second novel and uh
0: i haven't read it but i, I think it is his first novel or no M- mother night i think is his first novel
1: the general premise is that uh, uh only 10 percent of the people need to work because technology has figured everything out and those 10 percent live very nice lives and everyone else lives kind of mediocre but not great lives and kind of uh you know as a lot of science fiction you could say i think sort of prophetic in terms of uh, yeah. uh how it turned some elements of it turned out to be true because player piano i think was kind of based on the old uh, kind of ge well, i forget exactly what tony grew or he's from or had spent time in new york we had the ge plants or whatever where um it was kind of like this big industrial thing and you know i think in some ways that was probably uh, a very good a very good like piece of advice of like if you know something in your life that's like interesting don't shy away from writing about it because between that and the war and everything, uh, he definitely captures his own kind of perspective.
0: Oh, there is a quote that you use in the book and I, I can't remember the author, but you can probably place it for me. Um, the advice, uh, write what, you know, ends up in a lot of professor, you know, books about professors contemplating adultery.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure exactly where that comes from, but I guess, I guess that is uh, one issue. And I think kind of one thing I touch on in the end is like, if you do, the book's not a how-to, but if you did, you could probably learn some from lessons from it. But if you took every lesson from it, then you're going to end up with homogenized writing. And that's, you know, not that, you know, obviously a lot of MFA students and that kind of mindset makes you a very good proficient writer in a lot of ways. But I think um, the best writers are kind of different, unusual in some ways. And maybe, something that's even considered bad now in a few years will seem distinct and unusual. So I I think there's both in terms of the content and in terms of the writing style, I think you definitely, you got to make sure, you know, you write what's true to you, but uh, make sure you write what's true to you in a way that's like distinct from other people.
0: Yeah. Introducing some element of autobiography, even into a fantastical narrative grounds it, you know, it gives it a a flavor of authenticity, even if, you know, the story itself is, utterly impossible there's a good comment here from david he writes um interesting discussion reminds me of reading franco moretti's atlas of the european novel where he does some of what it sounds like ben is doing sometimes called digital humanities moretti plots out numbers data geographies instead of focusing on plot character development etc so i i'm not familiar with that book are you
1: i i'm not familiar with that book either um it is and it, it now that i'm looking at it, it would be of interest because it was uh, written in 1997 it looks like so many years before mine Um, but yeah when I I just studied math in college uh, and statistics but kind of was always interested in this and since I graduated and since I've written this I've actually uh, been lucky enough to talk at a few schools have created digital humanities departments that kind of I think especially internally they're useful because you have these math professors and computer science professors who kind of like doing stuff like I do and you have you know, English professors who want to, or history professors who want to kind of, they realize that they are thinking a lot of data that they, you know, if you're an English professor, you are, you know, looking at the data by reading, but you're just not quantifying it in the same way. So I I think there is like a really good overlap there. And I think it's usually a jumping off point and you can't, you still need the qualitative analysis to do the real important stuff. I think just doing just the qualitative, I think, is a bit lacking compared to what you can do these days.
0: Well, the computer folks like to remind all the humanities folks that uh, the plural of anecdote is not data.
1: Fair enough, yeah. Uh,
0: I, I think I just heard or encountered the phrase digital humanities like in the last two or three weeks. Would you spell out in a bit more detail what that discipline entails?
1: Yeah. Um. From my understanding, and I think probably both the strength and the weakness of it is that there is no set definition of something that is digital humanities um which kind of lends itself to people doing whatever they want with it but it's kind of just looking at any field that's usually considered in the arts or qualitative and applying a data lens to it so i remember in college i don't think this was called digital humanities although it clearly would be um, a professor i had was a chinese scholar and he had kind of for his for 20 years or whatever had been going through these books of like Records from, I don't even know, a thousand, two thousand years ago in China, looking at government debts to each other and taxes they levied and stuff. But so he's kind of writing these histories of the taxes in China, from what I understand or remember. But he had never like gone through and like plotted um, exactly what it, the tax was in each province and each year over time. And instead of trying to put in a qualitative argument to that, using that, and then once you have that, you know, could you p- compare that to... Climate data that you had for the years to see where bad farming errors did that impact the government in some ways and things of those nature. And I think uh, my book is probably squarely in the digital humanities, although it's not written in a rigorous academic sense. But, you know, taking writerly advice and instead of kind of making a qualitative judgment of like, yeah, we think, because a lot of stuff in the English department is kind of just stated as fact. And I think that was maybe what bugged me as a student that made me write this years later was it's often like stated as a fact that something's better or not. And I know people have their own critiques about data being too close-minded, but it also felt very like stubborn to me that things were like proclaimed as superior or a good style. And then not there was then, like, whether or not it was data, there was really no evidence that it was better. So I think just kind of using this to kind of test theories or give perspective on theories is like square in the digi humanities
0: so for people who can't code in python um do you have any advice yeah. for aspiring writers for applying the the insights that you've gained to their own writing
1: you know i would say there i've never i used them a bit while writing this book and i honestly did not particularly love them but there are a few programs out there that will go through and kind of not just give you spelling and grammar but give you more intense stylistic tips, things similar to the L-Y adverbs or sentence length. I think those are a bit hard to incorporate, especially on the editing stage. I think at a certain point, you just have to kind of just say, this is my style and write from that from the beginning. So I think probably my advice is probably similar to others where if you find this interesting, you know, read it, ingest what other people have to say that are similar and like internalize that, but don't be obsessed over it every single sentence you're writing because ultimately you need your characters to be interesting. You need the conflict to be interesting. And this should really just be guiding uh kind of similarities you have. There are a few programs, you know, kind of the, where the name of my book comes from is I did kind of go through and found both adjectives and nouns that some authors use more than the others. And again, you shouldn't like shy away from using a verb or that you use way more than other people, but there are programs that just kind of spit out your frequency compared to other authors and I think that is illuminating I believe when I was doing it I realized I was using kind of conjunctions way more than other people because I was always saying like this author uses this however and like because and like I was using them at kind of an absurd rate and I actually did go through and edit slightly on that um, not that I still don't have those but it did make me I think conscious in a good way about a few things but I'd say pick your battles on, you know, the three or four things you think you could improve on in terms of craftsmanship.
0: I know there's at least one online tool that I like to use. It's, um, I think it's just called wordcounttool.net, but something like that. And it not only, I mean, you paste in your text and it not only tells you how many words are there, but it tells you uh, average sentence length. And um, it also tells you the the reading level, like the grade level that this is written to. And so usually if I have time, I will put in my not my first draft, but you know, what I think of is the thing I'm gonna post. I'll put it in and I'll look at the sentence length and I'll look at the um the reading level and then I'll go back and give it one more uh you know pass to try to get this sentence length down and the reading level down a little bit.
1: I, I think that's actually perfect. I've I've also cut down on my sentence length because I think when personally when I'm writing and I'm I'm internalizing the sentence you think everyone is going to be able to follow a long sentence, but in practice, it's sometimes you know a compound sentence is is can be tiring to read after and after. So
0: there are an infinite number of periods at your disposal. Use them exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ben, I've enjoyed our conversation. Where we're near the end here, is there anything that you would like the readers to know that we haven't touched on? Readers, listeners, <laughs> to know that we haven't touched on.
1: Uh, I don't. I don't think so. You know, this book came out five years ago, and I think most of it it's still applicable I think one kind of thing that's interesting is I had an epilogue that was cut or maybe maybe there might be a remnants of it but essentially I was like sort of thinking at the time like when would a computer be able to write a novel and uh, I still think it's probably in terms of writing a novel that's like interesting I think one thought I had was like by the time computers can do that that means that it's, it's the least of our concerns because a novel is way more complicated than conversing in person or average human communication. So if you can write an interesting novel, then we're really in trouble. Although I do think there is probably room out there for people who have more AI skills and kind of the modern tool set, because some of the writing generation I've seen, even though it's only a few paragraphs, is kind of wildly different than it was at a stage five years ago.
0: It's wildly different here in October than it was in May of this year. Yeah. It's moving fast.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I guess kind of uh, not at all. My book is my book's not trying to generate the perfect novel or use AI or anything like that. And there is, and I remember in my research for the book, there have been a few times, I think in like the late 1990s, there was a book by some French computer science and they, it was a bestseller and they, they claimed it was written by a computer. Um, but of course it turned out to be uh, a complete fraud and it was just written by a human so I think there is a bit of over eagerness in some ways for people to over-proclaim how good things are. But as you said, yes, it's getting getting interesting out there.
0: Any notion as to what your, your next book project will be?
1: Um not right now. Uh probably would be still something in the humanities. I think maybe not a book length, but one thing you mentioned earlier, um, which I set aside is that you know, my book does not have that many mention of science fiction authors and um you know i'm not the biggest science fiction fan so it wouldn't be me but i think kind of one thing that my book wasn't trying to do because it was trying to be for everyone is like it just kind of mentioned every single genre but i think if someone were to do this analysis whether it be me or someone else it would be very informative to kind of pick one genre whether it be horror or science fiction or just nonfiction, whatever and just kind of nail down kind of the trends there because i think sometimes that's almost, you know, it's a limited audience, but it's more interesting because the comparisons are more apt.
0: Well, on the, the sci-fi version, I would definitely be one of
1: their pre-orders. Right. right, right. <laughs> I'll tell, tell the publisher that we got one sale. So.
0: <laughs> you got one confirmed sale of a book that's not written. All right. Hey, Ben Blatt, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. This fun, too.
0: That was Ben Blatt. And, as so often happens with the people that I talk to for this program, I didn't get to read the entire book. And when I say I didn't get to, I didn't make the time to read the entire book before I spoke to the author. But the parts that I did read were a lot of fun, and I expect the entire book would be as well. It has a lot of charts in it, a lot of tables. Um, It's very easy on the eyes, not, you know, walls of text on every page. And it's just taking a very fun and lighthearted approach to this subject matter. So... If you are into writing and you would like to know what data science and statistical analysis can tell you possibly about your own writing, this might be a good place to start. You know, when I think about L-Y adverbs, surely the thing that I think of most readily is the adverb boldly, as in to boldly go, which not only commits the sin of using the L-Y adverb, but also splits an infinitive. To go. But... Imagine if Star Trek started with, to go boldly, where no man has gone before. Doesn't quite have the same ring. Anyway, yes, I am a sci-fi nerd, and I have no intention of changing that fact or hiding it. All right, this could be the last episode for a little bit. We're going to take a short break here while we work out the uh, logistics of getting podcasts put together under changing circumstances. Vague, I know. But when we do resume, I will be relying on the talents and the hard work of the Padverb production team, which includes executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borisov and Alina Voigt, and assistant producer Sonia Saw. I'm the host, KMO, and I also do some of the editing. I will talk to you again pretty soon, in the grand scheme of things. Until then, take care.